But this Enlightenment view is not only wrong, it's dangerous. Human reason, when cut loose from the constraints imposed by history, tradition, and experience, produces a lot of crazy notions. The abstract Enlightenment philosophy of Jean-Jacques Rousseau is a good example. It quickly pulled down the French state, leading to the French Revolution, the Reign of Terror, and the Napoleonic Wars. Millions died as Napoleon's army sought to rebuild every government in Europe in light of the one correct political theory he believed was permitted by Enlightenment philosophy. Today's cheerleaders for the Enlightenment tend to skip this part of the story. They also pass over the fact that the father of communism, Karl Marx, saw himself as promoting universal reason as well. His new science of economics ended up killing tens of millions of people in the 20th century. So did the supposedly scientific race theories of the Nazis. The greatest catastrophes of modernity were engineered by individuals who claimed to be exercising reason. Welcome to episode three of GTAA. In a few minutes, you're going to be hearing from Gene Bajalan, Eric Levitz, Matt Christman from Chapo Trap House, and Jacobin's Megan Day. And also, I should say, at the end of the episode, it looks like we're going to be debuting a new weekly segment from uh, David Griscom, my second favorite Texan after the one that I'm married to, who uh, is going to be doing a segment here every week uh, at the end of the show called Outlaws and Revolutionaries. Uh, we're just going to talk about country music, you know, for five or ten minutes. Really looking forward to that. Mm. Ties for being my second favorite Texan. Let's, uh, let's, let's say it that way so uh, Mark isn't offended. But in any case, the voice that you just heard was a guy named uh, Yoram Hazoni in a video for my favorite institution of higher learning, PragerU, talking about how the Enlightenment was bad because it led to the French Revolution and also communism and Marx and also Nazism, apparently. And Hazoni was on my radar because uh, this last week he has an article in the right-wing magazine Quillette called The Challenge of Marxism. And in there, he goes through a lot of standard right-wing tropes, things that I've heard a lot in the last few years from, for example, Jordan Peterson fans about how you know, social justice, progressivism in general, is basically Marxism or inflected by Marxism because Marxism teaches us to think in terms of oppressors and oppressed groups. And if you think that, you know, women are oppressed by men or gay people are oppressed by straight people or black people are oppressed by white people, then that's basically like the way that Marxism tells us that workers are oppressed by capitalists. Now, my problem with this line of reasoning has always been that it's so broad, if any kind of oppression of anybody by anyone counts, any view according to which anyone is oppressed by anyone counts as basically Marxist, then Marxism predates the birth of Karl Marx by basically all of human history. The authors of the book of Exodus uh, would be Marxists on this definition. Certainly, all the French revolutionaries uh, would be Marxists on that, this definition, at least to Zoni. Uh, to his credit, is consistent enough to have a problem with that too, although I'm a little unclear about how that works if you agree with the premise that feudalism is bad. And also, of course, if you think that the American Revolution was basically good, which, you know, Hazoni would not be welcome on PragerU if he didn't think that. 
this is something that you see a lot from these guys. For example, if you read the Lesser Ben's book, Ben Shapiro's The Right Side of History, you'll see him arguing unapologetically, this is, I'm not making this up, I'm not strawmanning him, this is what he says, that the reason the American Revolution was, well, less violent than the French Revolution wasn't, oh, say, because the American Revolution didn't take place against the backdrop of having a local feudal aristocracy who needed to be uprooted, would raise peasant armies against them, uh, would have nearby countries allied to try to crush them, etc., but was rather separated from uh, the empire it was rebelling against by an ocean and in land that was largely occupied by heavily outgunned Native Americans, thus severely reducing initial social conflict within the country. That would be the sort of explanation that a uh, crass materialist like me would give of, uh, of why the American Revolution was less violent than the French Revolution. But Shapiro's explanation, I guess maybe Hazoni's explanation, is that it's because the American revolutionaries were reading different philosophers than the French revolutionaries. Now that these Enlightenment philosophs who were influencing the French weren't influencing the Americans, which is kind of awkward if you start looking at what people like Thomas Jefferson or Thomas Paine, who I was talking to Harvey J.K. about in episode one, actually thought and said about religion and philosophy and other subjects. In any case, uh, I have invited Hazoni to come on the show and uh, discuss this with me. So if I'm, if I'm getting his view wrong here, maybe he can, uh, he can come on, he can accept the invitation and, uh, and give the best account that he can for, uh, for his own view. I'm open to that. Uh, I don't bite. But I think the part that I particularly want to talk about is the thing at the end of the video where he talks about how the Enlightenment, apparently not the Enlightenment thinkers who were influencing the Americans, but I guess the Enlightenment thinkers who were influencing the French, were also responsible for Marx, therefore Stalin, and also somehow Hitler. The view here is that the part that he's correct about, right, this is unambiguously true, is that Marxism is very much something that has deep roots within Enlightenment thought, that the kind of ideals that come out of the Enlightenment about reason, about human freedom, are things that, uh, that again, find a certain kind of expression in Marx, that certainly Marx is influenced by what's sometimes called the Republican theory of liberty, which is a view that says that we should think of freedom not in the way that uh, John Locke, for example, did, primarily in terms of non-interference, but primarily in terms of not being vulnerable to unjust domination by others. And in particular, of course, a lot of Marxism is what you get when you take seriously the idea that uh, the economic sphere, the workplace, uh, is, uh, is, is a sphere of power and domination. Now, that's not obviously all there is to it, but I think it's an important jumping off point. And I think thinking about that really shows the absurdity of trying to blame Stalin on Marx and therefore on the Enlightenment. Because the kind of society that, that, that Marx was envisioning was a society uh, where instead of having a division between workers and, um, and factory owners, for example, and others exercising economic domination, you would have workers' control of the means of production. Uh, so what, uh, what Marx calls in his instructions to uh, the First International, the 
end of the uh, despotic system of subordination of labor in favor of a republican system based on free associations of workers, which of course doesn't sound very much like Stalin's Russia, if you know anything about that. And in fact, uh, Marx was a consistent critic, some of the, of uh, things like censorship, some of his earliest writings were about censorship. Lee Phillips, who I talked to last time, has a great Jacobin article where he quotes some of this material and kind of goes back into Marx's critique of censorship. Marx was not, in fact, uh, a supporter of any dictatorship that existed at the time that he did. In fact, the only head of state in his lifetime who Marx liked enough to even send him a friendly telegram was one Abraham Lincoln, who he supported because he supported the struggle to overthrow the planter class and free uh, slave, free the slaves in the American South. And Marx sometimes used uh, phrases like dictatorship, the proletariat, in other words, the rule of the working class. And Again, that gets back to that smaller Republican conception of liberty, Republican like Roman Republic. There's an analogy there. The idea that one class of the population uh, has to sort of step in to temporarily exercise uh, its domination over others in order to achieve the freedom of everybody. But not only was he not imagining a one-party dictatorship, his real-life model of what this would look like was the ultra-democratic Paris Commune in 1871, uh, where they did things like abolish the old military in favor of a popular militia, turn over abandoned factories to uh, worker cooperatives, essentially, to, uh, to run democratically, uh, make all elected officials recallable by their constituents at any time and any reason, make sure that no elected official could be paid more than the average salary of a skilled worker, uh, and so on. This was his model. And in fact, it was such a radically democratic model that both Marx and his anarchist rivals within the workers' movement at the time saw it as a model. So, of course, Stalin committed various atrocities, but there's something a little funny about uh, blaming Marx for atrocities committed by somebody in a kind of political system he didn't advocate, who was born after he died, when certainly I would imagine anybody at PragerU uh, thinks that, for example, George Washington shouldn't be viewed as a horrible person, even though he literally participated in one of the most evil institutions in human history, uh, which was the slave system. Uh, so, uh, and finally, of course, uh, the idea that, uh, that Hitler and uh, the crimes of the Nazis have anything to do with the Enlightenment is an extremely odd one, considering that, um, that, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis were all about tradition and communal bonds and all of those things uh, that are unsettled uh, by uh, enlightenment valorization of reason. Uh, that, you know, the, the, the Nazis slogan, you know, about the role of women, for example, was Kinder Kitsche Kuka, which, uh, which, which means children, church, cooking. Right? Um, and, so I think trying to tie in the Nazis here too is this, is just such a stretch that it really undermines the whole thing. But hey, again, I've invited Hazoni on the show. He can defend himself. He can correct me uh, if I've misrepresented him in any way. Right now, though, I want to turn from this kind of more abstract intellectual conservatism uh, that's represented by people like uh, Yoram Hazoni to the kind of nationalistic uh, authoritarian conservatism uh, that is uh, all too commonly has real world power right now. And so uh, I want to, um, to welcome uh, Gene Bajalan uh, to, uh, to the program. He's 
among many, many other things I, I, I could mention, uh, his academic work and everything else, the part that's, uh, that's of particular interest to me right now is, a, uh, is an article that he wrote uh, a few years ago. He co-wrote with our late friend Michael Brooks called America's AK, AKP uh, about the analogy between uh, Erdogan's party, the ruling party in Turkey, and the American uh, GOP. And I thought this might be a really interesting time, given a lot of what's going on lately, to revisit that analogy. How are you doing, Gene? Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, no, I'm uh, really glad that you came on. So in this, uh, in this article that you wrote with Michael a few years ago, I mean, I guess just to, just to set the scene a little bit, right? So um, this had to do with a, uh, with a kind of diplomatic incident that, that had happened uh, at the time in 2017. So maybe we could just get rolling with you uh, kind of recapping that uh, and also saying a little bit like what the AKP is, right? Like what, what is the like ideological nature of this ruling party in Turkey? Sure. So uh, the initial context of the article was an attack on protesters in Washington, D.C. by uh, Erdogan, the, the president of Turkey's uh, security detail. And, you know, they basically charged out into uh, – in, in, into demonstrators beating them and basically got away with it uh, at the end of the day. But of course, uh, you know, this was roundly condemned, not by the president, of course. And, you know, uh, from reading Bolton's book, uh, Trump has quite an affinity for Erdogan. It's very impressed with Erdogan. But many Republicans and Democrats condemn, condemn this uh, uh, action. And basically the context of us writing this article was you know, vintage Michael, you know, I was discussing with him about this incident and we were discussing about how, you know, er, you know, Erdogan's rule in Turkey is becoming increasingly thuggish and how a lot of the pearl clutching amongst uh, Republicans, you know, at the time you had people like uh, John McCain was still alive, you know, very upset that this would happen. But, you know, these complaints are happening exactly at the same time as Republican legislators across the country were moving to make demonstration and protest far more difficult uh, 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 in the United States. And that basically sort of led to a kind of conversation about, you know, when we look at it, you know, there's quite interesting parallels between the Republican Party and its specifically its drift and its trajectory today and the development of the Justice and Development Party, AKP, according to its uh, Turkish, um, according to its Turkish acronym. So uh, we decided to sort of write a piece about how you know all this pearl clutching on the uh, on behalf of Republicans about this violence that uh, Erdogan was visiting on protesters in in. Uh, 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 in DC was really, you know, kind of ridiculous when looked at in the context of their political actions uh, and their opposition to free assembly and, and protest. So that's kind of the first part of it. And I guess the second part, for those people who are not so familiar with uh, with Turkey, the Justice and Development Party is a conservative political party that came to power in Turkey in 2002. Uh, it initially came to power sort of presenting itself as a liberal conservative party, very much on the model of the Christian Democrats in Germany. Uh, and since coming to power and sort of 
more precisely since about 2010, 2011. It's increasingly gone in this authoritarian populist way. And we, we see a lot of the sort of same, you know, a lot of comparisons can be a little bit trite, but we mm. see a lot of the same uh, uh, types of discourse, conspiracy, uh, the the notion of uh, an oppressed moral majority, uh, you know, all these kind of common themes we see between the development of the Republican Party and the trajectory of the Justice and Development Party in Turkey. And, you know, like I said, you know, you can draw, you know, there are very serious differences between uh, Turkey and the United States, but you do sort of see uh, Trumpism and Erdoganism in a kind of, uh, as similar phenomena. Yeah, so, so I, want, I want to get into, uh, into that a little bit, right? So yeah, you do say in the article, of course, uh, Trump, and I always mispronounce his name, Erdogan, uh, are, uh, are, are, have very dissimilar uh, biographies, right? You know, Trump uh, was born with, you know, multiple silver spoons in his mouth, uh, and um, and Erdogan was not right. Like I, I, I think Erdogan even uh, spent some time in prison earlier in his mm-hmm. career. Um, so so as the the personalities are very different in some ways, uh, but certainly the the political appeal uh, is is pretty similar in some ways, right? So uh, so you so like one pretty obvious point of connection there. Um, you know, besides like the base of support, right? You know, who's like you know what sort of having this element of the population that's, that's a, a non-elite group, you know, kind of far from the levers of power uh, that, that, you know, that makes up a lot of the base uh, and using certain kinds of populist rhetoric, uh, but also in, in both cases, uh, not, you know, not governing as economic populists, right, to put it mildly. Yeah. I mean, to a certain degree, the populism in Turkey is more real than in the United States. I mean, you know, one of the key differences between the American and the United States is, you know, American corporate interests and elites are so much more sort of embedded in political power that even if there is a drive to make changes, it's almost impossible to go against those uh, uh, sort of institutions. In Turkey, you know, there is a, pow- a powerful business uh, interest in elites, but it's a developing country, so the context, the context is very difficult, uh, different. So, for example, Erdogan did populist things like improving public services. You know, he had the infrastructure of a sort of uh, a weak social democratic state to build upon. And uh, he, you know, he did things like delivering coal to poor people and things like that. Uh, so there is, uh, you know, some differences on, on on that level. But in general, you know, the IKP and the Republican Party have been ruling in big business, uh, in the interests of big business. And, you know, they, they draw their support, base of support from poor people in the heartland of the country. It builds on that resentment against what they see as liberal elites, whether in the United States, that's the coastal elites of California and New York, or in Turkey, it is the cities of Istanbul and Izmir, which are seen as being sort of detached from the rest of the country. So they draw on that. And at the same time, they draw on a base of an elite base, which presents itself as being culturally closer to the, that mass of people, but is a business elite. So in, in, in Turkey, you have these uh, capitalists from central Anatolia who weren't the traditional capitalist elite of Turkey, and they became a very important base of support. And just as in the United States, you have 
the you know one of Trump's biggest bases, not people in trailer parks. So people in trailer parks don't 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 tend to vote. I mean, I live in the middle of uh, Trump country, and the base of support is small business people, local capitalists, professionals, and things like that. So you have this kind of province versus metropole dynamic taking place, and I think. The similarity comes from the fact that both Turkey and the United States lack a Labour Party. You know, you know, it's tempting to compare Turkey to a European country in some ways, and some some ways that works. But Turkey, like uh, the United States, did not develop a strong Labour Party. There were attempts. There was the Turkish Workers' Party in the '60s, but in essence, you had the emergence of a sort of state party the Republican People's Party, which had been an authoritarian party in the 1930s, in the 1970s, taking a sort of social democratic uh, shift in the country. So standing for secularism uh, and then appropriating a lot of language of, uh, of the left. And, and you see a similar dynamic in, in uh, the United States with the Democratic Party moving in that direction. But neither of those parties were truly anchored to labor uh, so what we see in Turkey and the United States is a lot of political uh, battles, uh, in a sense, intra-right-wing battles for over symbols. So in Turkey, it's a right-wing battle over secularism versus uh, Islam. So in Turkey, when when uh, Erdogan first came to power, when he tried to put Abdullah Gül, his lieutenant, in as the president, there were protests of secular nationalists who, you know, are not particularly left-wing on many issues. They just reject Islamism. And, you know, if you look at the Democratic Party, we often talk about moderate Democrats, right? But we're really talking about conservative Democrats. We're talking about Democrats who, by and large, buy into the framing of politics that is offered by the Republican Party. They just don't think people should be overtly racist or uncouth. So, you know, you, you, you have you have a politics which is orientated around this kind of cultural struggle as opposed to... Uh, even a superficial class struggle. And, the, you know, the result is that the political right, both in Turkey and in, in the United States, have been able to mobilize the resentment of people who feel left out or feel sort of culturally, you know, not in the mainstream. And they've been able to play that very effectively. And as the parties have sort of degenerated even further, you know, it enters into conspiracy theory. Because, you know, terms like the deep state that we all know about today, that comes from Turkey, right? That term, the deep state, was uh, originally used to uh, talk about the sort of mafia, right-wing paramilitary, military alliances that would uh, sort of undergird uh, democratic politics in Turkey. So we have this kind of, uh, we have these like interesting parallels in the sense that the ideological to drain in some ways between the uh, uh, Turkey and um, uh, the United States are quite similar in the sense that it's this, it's often framed as a cultural battle. Yeah. And I mean, I, I guess, I guess I do want to just make sure that, that we hit this point because one of the reasons that I thought it'd be interesting to revisit this now, right? The the article was written three years ago uh, is because, you know, so you say, for example, in the article, um, both uh, Trump and Erdogan understand democracy in the crudest majoritarian sense of the word, holding liberal democratic rights in contempt and validating their authoritarian impulses by touting their electoral success. Turkey's rapid slide toward authoritarianism is not being replicated in its entirety in the United States. America, unlike Turkey, still possesses an independent media and relatively open civil society, all of which is still basically true. 
right? And and I I, I, don't, I don't think we should be you know I I don't think hysteria about fascism you know really serves any any strategic interest, but um, I think that it's safe to say that the authoritarian impulses that we've gotten in the Trump administration have gotten a little bit more undisguised in the last, you know, a few years, especially honestly in the last six months that uh, a lot of what you're talking about in your article, when, when you do, when you do talk about um, GOP authoritarianism in this country had to do with uh, state legislatures trying to do things to crack down on uh, protests uh, and of course, a lot of that happened. A lot of that is very creepy, right? But like, well, I think we've seen much more of it from the presidential level uh, lately. Certainly, in terms of doing things like um, deploying the military against protesters in Washington D.C., uh, sending the D, uh, Department of Homeland Security to uh, shove people into unmarked vans in Portland, uh, and at least doing these unsettling trial balloons like the president tweeting that we should delay the election, uh, which obviously doesn't have any power to do. And he is still constrained by a legal system that's very different, you know, than what exists in Turkey. Uh, but I, I think it's, I think it's safe to say that the, that the tendency, right. Of the Trump administration has maybe gotten a little bit closer uh, to the AKP model, you know, in, uh, since you wrote the article. I would, I would, I would completely agree with that. You know, of course, we have these very important structural differences, but the impulse remains the same. And you know, as you note, these things go from worse, you know, worse to worse. You know, we see, we see, you know, all these uh, increasingly authoritarian attempts uh, to play, you know, to play politics with things, to politicize the military, and to gradually dismantle those institutions. Now, and, and but the question is one of. Uh, is not a qualitative difference. You know, Erdogan to consolidate power had to dismantle certain institutions within the Turkish state and consolidate his power over the uh, AKP party. You know, it was a process. We're seeing a similar kind of process. Now, of course, you know, the Republican Party is more independent, uh, at least institutionally, than the Justice and Development Party. Uh, American institutions and legal system is, well, in a sense, it's more diffuse. So it makes it, as a federal state, it's a lot harder to impose, you know, Turkey has a strong unitary tradition. America is a federal state. It's, it's, it, it's harder to impose rule over the country because power is more diffuse. But I think you're exactly right. We, you know, we've seen that slide towards authoritarian behavior. We've seen an increase in that crude majoritarianism. And, uh, you know, it's, it, 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 it's, I mean, my joke is usually it's like Turkey's, uh, you know, Turkey's America 10 years in the future. Because if you leave these people in power, it only, uh, it only emboldens them and only allows them to move further and further uh, in towards that authoritarian mode. You just simply can't, uh, you can't leave someone like Trump in power and expect that these institutions will just somehow managed to survive. We've seen over the course of the Trump administration the removal of professionals, whatever the problems we have with technocratic elites, but the removal of professionals from positions, imposition of, you know, uh, cronies. And I mean, just look at Voice of America, for example, and the kind of people who are now being platformed on Voice of America. You know, we see how that kind of shift takes place. And this is exactly the same shift that happened in Turkey. It's just Turkey as a country with weaker institutions and which never did have such a 
you know, Turkey like America makes a big deal about its revolution, which wasn't actually really very revolutionary. Uh, but, um, you know, you have this, uh, you, you have this consolidation of power around an authoritarian leader. So people who think that, you know, just because Trump's incompetent, that leaving him off in office is not going to be dangerous for the future of democracy, completely don't understand how these kind of things, how authoritarians take, take power. Authoritarians are not necessarily geniuses or brilliant people, but they do have a sense of, you know, that own preservation and the longer they stay in the in power the more likely they are to use uh sort of bureaucratic mechanisms and then you know violent mechanisms to maintain that position and it'll affect everything so you know i think that article unfortunately is held up pretty well because you know we've seen the the republican party hasn't had its an epiphany moment where they've been like oh trump's gone too far they've just got more and more uh, subservient and venal towards him. So, you know, I, I think, you know, why yeah. do that? You always hope you're wrong, but yeah, 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 yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and I think certainly, you know, if, if you think about things, you know, like however much further you think this drift might be carried on with another four years of Trump, some of that's unknowable, obviously. Um, but also I think there are some uh, extremely knowable, things uh about what what the next four years might look like because if nothing else you know we can just look at what's happened in the last four years look at some of the things that are the most uh directly into the power of the executive and uh, and see how that would continue right so uh, so one thing i i think that i don't feel like is being talked about nearly enough in discussions on the left about the election is like national labor relations board appointees that uh uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not very sexy, but I mean, like, this is something uh, where the presidency has, has a lot of power uh, over the fate of what's left of organized labor in the United States. Uh, and we've seen the kind of appointees, you know, you, you get from, uh, from Trump. Uh, we've seen also court decisions, you know, that, that impact on that, uh, like the Janus decision to get rid of uh, agency fees and public sector unions. Uh, and of course, you know, Biden is the worst kind of neoliberal Democrat, uh, and, and he's certainly not going to, you know, be a friend of organized labor, but he represents a different kind of ruling class strategy, and he's not going to try to stamp that out in the same way that, uh, that, that a second-term Trump administration would continue to do. Uh, and this is why uh, I was actually really hoping to uh, loop in uh, Eric Levitz, uh, who's, uh, who's joining us next, uh, who who wrote a uh, really interesting article recently? Uh, so New York Magazine and uh, Intelligencer uh, called "Working Class," quote unquote, "Working Class Conservatism Doesn't Work Without Unions," uh, where he basically just makes a point that I think connects in a pretty powerful way with one of those analogies you see between the GOP and the AKP, uh, which is the co- you know the combination of populist appeals with. Um, a record in power that especially in the United States, right? Like, you know, like I think somewhere like Turkey where maybe, you know, in some ways, you know, the, the structures are different. You, you know, you may have a weaker local capitalist class in certain respects, right? There's a little bit more room to put uh, economic meat on the populist bones, uh, but certainly in the United States, not whatsoever, right? Like, like what we've, um, you know, what Eric talks about in the article is you've seen somebody like Trump run as a populist, certainly in 2016, 
uh, but govern like Reaganism on steroids. Um, so thank you for coming on, Eric. Um, I was, was hoping to, you know, to get to both of you for just a minute before Jean has to leave. Uh, yeah. But yeah. Uh, so, uh, so do you want to talk a little bit about that article? Uh, yeah, sure. And yeah, no, I'm happy to be uh, among the, the league of the spectacle bearded gentlemen. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so the, I mean, the basic argument is, are, is my audio okay, by the way? I, oh, yeah, your audio's okay. great. Yep. Um, yeah, well, basically, you know, it sort of was jumping off of David Brooks' column about, uh, you know, the, the future, the, the post-Trump GOP and kind of the populist wing or, or the sort of rising stars within the Republican Party that have been framing themselves as, um, as representing a break with Reagan-era market fundamentalism, um, from different angles, you know, uh, the, the most, the least sort of even like populist and affect uh, on his list was like Tom Cotton, but, but Cotton is so hawkish on China that it kind of represents, uh, you know, an, an instance of putting a conception of, of nationalist populism ahead of um, the imperatives of capital accumulation. But the, the argument of the piece is that basically, you know, I think that there is space uh, for a, a right-wing populism in the U.S. in terms of public opinion. Um, there's definitely a base of support uh, for a politics of uh, white grievance combined with uh, welfareism. Um, but it's just uh, the political economy of the GOP won't really allow any of these, um, or that there's no evidence that allow them to do it. Uh, what we see is even someone like Michael, Marco Rubio would uh, wrote a piece for First Things um, a few months ago where he uh, makes the argument, uh, you know, tips his hat to the fact that, you know, Catholic social teaching uh, imagines a very strong place for trade unions um, in economic uh, management and that there's this, you know, tradition of, you know, Christian democracy in Europe, this, this sort of corporatist thing. And he, he mentions, you know, that we, we whatever, he, he, he acknowledges this, but then he has like a 6% like voting record for the AFL-CIO like score or whatever, um, and, you know, you do see someone like Orrin Cass, this right-wing intellectual who runs American Compass, this new populist right think tank. He's acknowledged, uh, at least on like Ezra Klein show, um, stipulated that, that he believes, you know, his whole thing is that he, he wants to be able to bring back the family wage. He wants women to be able to stay at home. He wants traditional gender roles in an economy that can support those gender roles, which Rubio also expresses a desire for. But to actually bring U.S. wages to the point where you could – I mean, working class people in the United States barely can support themselves on two incomes. So putting right. yourself in a position where one income, well, that, that requires an economic agenda far more radical than, than things that they would call, you know, communism, basically. But, but Cass acknowledged that, yeah, we, we do need uh, sectoral uh, bargaining. We need and, and workers' councils within firms um, in order to establish a floor of, of wages and benefits that is high enough to, to make this vision work. Um, so some right-wing intellectuals are shading into what is actually necessary. But in terms of people who are actually Republican politicians, you know, the Republican Party still exists to oppose something like sectoral bargaining. And yeah, so, 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 yeah, so just, just, just to be clear for anybody, anybody who's not really familiar with it, right, I mean, the, what would be meant there by sectoral bargaining is something that has historically been a big part of the model of uh, some Scandinavian social democracies, also even some, like, kind of uh, – Catholic center right, you know, kind of uh, kind of parties and you know places like Germany and stuff they would support, 
which you know where you, you have workers in entire segments of the economy, like entire industries collectively bargaining with all of the employers in that sector, uh, which, uh, which, and with the state, of course, acting as, as a referee for that process, uh, which is something that, again, if you're serious about saying, all right, we don't want like tons of more direct state control uh, over, over the economy, but we want to reverse these long-term trends uh, towards, you know, um, lowering workers' wages to the point where, as you say, right, even two incomes, right, it's, it's very difficult to, uh, to support a family on that for many people, never mind the 1950s single breadwinner model that you'd need for these people's social model. Um, but of course, not only is that, you know, like you're not going to get proposals like that from, from Democrats right now, never mind Republicans. Uh, and, and really, uh, given, uh, given the support, you know, given the structure of the Republican Party, given, the, uh, given the, the donor class, you know, that it's serving, given the kind of ideological strictures, uh, you're just not going to get very much room in practice for any kind of meaningful populism that, uh, you know, you'll, you can get lots of populist rhetoric, certainly culturally that's existed forever, you know, that uh, talk about like coastal elites you know, shoving Hollywood garbage down our throats, whatever, you know, offending the sensibilities of salt-of-the-earth people, which, again, is not unlike some of the, the rhetoric uh, that you get, you know, from, from Turkish conservatives. Uh, but, uh, but even, you know, economically, like, I mean, we've seen this interesting shift towards a lot more conservatives talking that way, right? Like, and, and not just, like, relatively obscure intellectual conservatives, but, you know, but even... Um, for example, right, you know, a uh, congressman like Josh Howley uh, or, um, you know, Tucker Carlson, who, you know, relative to the general crash of, of TV ratings in the last couple decades, you know, has, is a wildly popular, you know, TV host uh, and will frequently talk about things like libertarian economic policies being bad. Uh, and, of course, even Donald Trump, when he was running for, for president, right, you you quote in the article the, uh, the last um, – you know, the last uh, campaign ad he did in 2016, right? You know, his, his final statement to voters, which hit these themes in a pretty direct way. Yeah, yeah, I think that's all, um, it's all right. I mean, I think that, I think a couple of things are going on. Um, one is that the Republican Party's coalition has been um, trending more working class uh, than, it, than it was previously. It's still, you know, uh, Controlling just for income, um, you know, the lower your income is, the more likely you are to vote Democratic. But it's that the gap is not uh, yeah. as significant as it used to be. Um, but and then the other thing is that uh, the cultural stuff, it's, you know, it used to be just Hollywood that was projecting these sort of liberal values. Now, because um, consumer facing brands, uh, if you want to make your brand something big for uh basically that consumer brands always target sort of young urban dwelling people as kind of the core, uh, core demographic group. Uh, older people tend to have already picked all their sort of brand alignments. They don't shop as much. They're also not trendsetters or whatever. Um, so it's always been the case that like urban dwelling young people is who consumer facing brands want to align themselves with. And this has resulted in Nike and all of these major corporations aligning themselves with, with woke uh, anti-conservative mm -hmm. values. And that uh, is gotten to a point where, you know, uh, 
the conservative base can't ignore that. It's very in their face that um, their coalition partners, the Chamber of Commerce, is composed of all these people who are aligned with Colin Kaepernick. Um, and so, so both for material reasons and that, you know, obviously uh, on its own terms, market fundamentalism, whatever we want to call it, uh, you know, has failed uh, to create a political economy uh, that supports, you know, the traditional family or white dominance or white supremacy or any of the things that the conservative cultural uh, element in America wanted. You know, the world is becoming increasingly more anti-traditional. Um, the pace of change is accelerating. It's, it's not doing what it said it's going to do in material terms. And then there's the cultural slight of corporate America aligning itself with social liberalism. Yeah, no, absolutely. So all that makes sense as a reason why there would be this incentive to talk more in economic populist terms. Uh, but then you immediately crash up against this wall you talk about in your piece, which is, okay, well, hold on, right? If if we see these things as a big problem, right, if, if we want to limit uh, the power of uh, corporations in some ways, uh, then the only two mechanisms that have ever been devised for doing that are labor unions and the regulatory state, uh, and there's basically just no room in the American context uh, for uh, for the right uh, to to actually support any expansion of either of those things. In fact, they they support you know doing away with what little is left. I've always thought it was interesting, like the way B, D, Steve Bannon uses this phrase, uh, deconstructing the administrative state, which sounds sort of radical and populist, and also sort of like Foucault or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but then, like, you start to think about it, it's like, wait a second, does he actually mean anything by deconstructing the administrative state that, like, regular Reaganites don't mean by deregulation? Yeah, well, I think now Bannon might uh, be open to defining it as prison abolition. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, People like, uh, I mean, in Missouri, Josh Hawley is my uh, uh, senator. Right. And the campaign that, he ran was actually a very fascinating campaign. You know, uh, here in Springfield, he, I think he, you know, in the Southwest Missouri, he did very well. He got like 70% or something like that. The campaign was orientated around Claire McCaskill is rich and drinks uh, cocktails and she is not one of us. And the rhetoric of working class, and I think this is sometimes that some of us on the left miss, when they say working class, they're not talking about a socioeconomic formation. They're talking about a lifestyle that they idealize in their head. So when someone says working class around Springfield, they're talking about someone who works at the Tracker Boats shop. They're not talking about the woman who cleans the Bass Pro headquarters. So, you know, there's a kind of rhetorical uh, sleight of hand that is used by, uh, by American conservatism. And I think Eric's completely correct. You know, there is a, you know, uh, Nathan Robinson's piece on where are the right-wing populists was a, very controversial. And I think half, you know, half of it was correct that none of these politicians mm. are really populist. Josh Hawley is presented as being one of the populist ones. He, he's not anywhere near a populist. I mean, the, the joke about Josh Hawley is that, you know, he went to like in all these elite schools and now he's playing like salt of the earth uh, proletarian for Springfield. And this works well in Missouri because Eric Greitens, who, who was governor, you know, again, he was like a Navy SEAL super tough. The guy had a DPhil from Oxford in, uh, in development stu studies, the most hippy-dippy discipline there is. And his wife was a tenure-track professor at uh, Mizzou. So, you know, the, 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 there's this huge, uh, you know, this, the, the political economy of the GOP, as Eric puts it, 
doesn't allow these guys to get a voice. But that, you know, that is definitely a hunger for that kind of populism amongst people uh, across places like the Midwest. I can't speak about other places, but definitely around here. There's a great deal of disillusionment. And, uh, you know, this rhetoric speaks to people, even if it is superficial. And on the, the cultural element, I do think that there is, like, actually, that's where there is a quasi-authentic uh, aspect to this. I've talked about it with regard to Trump, but I think it applies, actually, uh, you know, to Holly. Like, you're mentioning uh, the elite schools that these conservative populists went to. Um, I think it is the case that a lot of them genuinely felt alienated and aggrieved by right. their isolation on those campuses uh, on the basis of their cultural, religious uh, beliefs, uh, to a, in a way that is like sort of uh, you know emotionally analogous to how uh, conservatives feel, uh, cultural conservative working class people feel um, watching the entertainment and seeing the, the, the sort of hegemony that liberals have attained over mainstream culture. Um, and so they, they really do share this grievance of uh, hating the, 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 cultural, the cultural elite. Um, and then that's really, I think, what, what gives their their uh, politics it's kind of uh you know uh, what fuels it yeah no that makes a lot of sense and i and, and look i mean it just because you want two things that can't both happen doesn't mean that you really don't want both of those things right like so um you know i mean somebody could like be working all the time and they really wish they had more free time but they also like really don't want to be unemployed and you know like there might be no realistic way in the near future of achieving both of them but that doesn't mean they don't really want them and so you know like i think for example um eric one of my favorite pieces from you has always been one that you wrote a couple of years ago about uh jordan peterson uh who as i saw you said on on twitter right i mean it's, it's sort of even talking about him now feels a little sad because he's gone from uh having this these undeserved levels of uh, recognition and success as a public intellectual to uh, having a equally undeserved kind of Sisyphean hell uh, of, of, of addiction and personal trauma. Uh, but, you know, since, since he is a wildly popular author and he has convinced a lot of people uh, as, as bad as we feel for him personally, right. It is still worth talking about the ideas. Uh, and, uh, and there is this really interesting tension. I've always thought in somebody like Peterson between that, look, he clearly really does deplore all the, all the cultural trends that he's, he's reacting to. Right. You know, like, like I don't doubt that for a second, right. That he, he thinks there should be, you know, stronger families and communal ties and churches and all of these things. Uh, but he's also a extremely strong, even hysterical opponent of, of any effort at, at redistribution, uh, which, uh, which, which he, he associates with equality of outcome the quality of opportunity is fine, even noble, he says, right? But a quality of outcome uh, is the fast track to the gulag. Uh, and, and so in practice, he's like a pretty uncritical celebrator of, uh, of free markets. But of course, unrestrained market forces are for better or for worse, right? Like this is not all bad. There are good aspects of this. There are also really horrible aspects in human terms. But like unrestrained markets are exactly what's brought about the situation that he deplores, right? The, the primary reason why people um, below a certain age are less likely to get married, start families sooner, you know, live in the same place for long periods of time where they could develop these kind of traditional, you know, uh, communal bonds that, you know, are according to Peterson, our best defense against the dragon of chaos uh, is, 
is not primarily because of anything that any feminist academic has said on a college campus. The, you know, the primary reason uh, is because unrestrained neoliberal capitalism puts a lot of, you know, financial pressures on people that depending on what segment of the population you are in might lead you to have to move around all the time, might lead you uh, to just, uh, to just not be making very much money and not feel like you're in a financial position to do those things and have financial stress that makes it hard to, to hold together relationships. So I don't think that means that he's like lying when he says that he deplores the cultural trends towards, you know, that lead to these kind of young men who are his primary demographic being more atomized and alienated than they would be otherwise. I think he really does. And I also think he's sincere about his promotion of free market capitalism. It just happens to be the case that in real life, um, if you're going to meaningfully support one of these things, you know, you have to kind of let go of the other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, the, 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 uh, I think she's a historian, maybe a sociologist, Melinda Cooper um, uh, has written about the ways in which there were perceived compatibilities between the social conservative and the libertarian project when fusionism really first got underway and in like the, the 60s, um, as far as, you know, the intuitive notion that uh, the welfare state displaces some of the functions of the church and the family. It makes people less reliant on uh, the church and the family, uh, particularly, uh, you know, uh, a woman in a, you know, we might call abusive, they might call whatever marriage, like, uh, has more ability to lead if the state does provide her and her child with uh, some basic welfare support, right? So there were ways in which one could think, actually, no, our projects are really compatible in the first uh, instance. Um, But I think that relied among the social conservatives on a naivete about how capitalism works, um, you know, that that, that ultimately this project was not going to be uh, sustainable. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense. Right. Like, and, and it is worth highlighting, right. What you just said, cause, cause this is, this is an important thing in terms of thinking about how the left could possibly respond to, to all of this, uh, that of course, uh, atomization and alienation and people not being able to afford to start families were all bad, but, uh, the, the lost world that's, 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 uh, that's regretted, right, you know, by, by social conservatives is also, is also bad, right? You know, that there's that it is in fact quite bad when people, uh, you know, like it's, it's good that you can hold together a relationship if you want to, but it's quite bad if you're stuck in a bad one because you can't, you know, like you just don't have the financial resources uh, to, uh, to strike out uh, on your own. Um, and, and so what I've always thought is that in terms of a message that could reach some people, Right for for whom this is this message is appealing. Clearly, not all of them. Right, like like there are lots of people who have deep ideological commitments to things that are just never going to be compatible, you know, with what we want. And that's that, you know, I mean, that's just life. But people who are persuadable, right? You know, I've always thought that the the best uh, message sent was okay. You know, we're not going to go along with you in, in undoing the regulatory state so that you can economically coerce people uh, into staying in bad situations, right? Uh, but we do feel you on the question of uh, people not being able to afford a house and start a family, you know, and, and all of that stuff. Uh, so, so we can't offer you turning back the clock. What we can offer you, ideally, uh, is a way that uh, that we can um, that we can offer a meaningful choice, 
right? You know, yeah. in other words, yeah. That, that, um, yeah, and I think that like the one place where this did like uh, where this actually gets into a substantive and potential like slight conflict between um, portions of within the left, uh, but where I take the position that one, I think it's just a good idea on the merits, but also politically um, to reach out to cultural conservatives is like, are you going to do public childcare, just public childcare, or are you going to have public childcare with, um, you know, if, if you want uh, one of the partners to stay at home, a subsidy that, that supports that lifestyle choice uh, as well. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's some thought that if, if that option of subsidizing one partner to stay home exists, then in a misogynistic society, women are going to be pressured into taking it. It's going to set back their careers and set back the cause of feminism. Um, you know, I, I take more the idea that, you know, if you look at a lot of working class uh, people, especially, you know, whatever, across the board, and especially like there's some like more conservative, like uh, uh, Hispanic communities and stuff where this is, whatever, this is an option that people want. And uh, I don't think that... Um, that state policy should force people, should, should coerce people either way. Um, and then, you know, as far as the problem of this, this baseline sort of uh, misogynistic pressures within the culture, we, we want to work on that separately, you know, through, uh, through advocacy and through, you know, trying to change cultural attitudes, but that the, the mechanism shouldn't be, um, you know, withdrawal of state support. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. No, that. uh, yeah, that that makes that makes sense to me. Um, and, and and again, you know, I I think that uh, I think that we can the message can be, um, you know, cultural freedom, right? In in other words, uh, if if you want to, uh, if you want to live in a super traditional religious, you know, nuclear family, then as long as you're not you know coercing or abusing anyone, right? You know, you you can do that, right? You know, if you want to live in a polyamorous Wiccan commune, you can do that too. Right. You know, and, and of, of course up to a certain point, right. This is, this is what like a good libertarian would say, but I would say the difference uh, is that, you know, go back to that nice John Stuart Mill phrase about experiments and living, right. You know, that we want to, we want to actually fully fund the experiments, right. That like not just say, you know, Hey, if, if you can come up with the money to build a super collider, you can do an experiment, right. You know, but, uh, but that actually like, we're going to meaningfully economically uh, enable that. Uh, and it, and I, I know um, we're not gonna be able to really get into this right, you know, right, right now, you know, in the couple minutes before uh, Matt Chrisman uh, joins us. So, so this is just going to be a very brief preview of coming attractions. And with any luck, you know, you'll, you'll come back maybe sometime in October and have a much longer discussion about all this. Yeah. That, uh, that when we say, uh, when we talk about what a more meaningfully economically free society would be like, right? that like this is something uh, where I've always thought, right. I, I haven't always been sure, right. As, as I've read some of your, your pieces over the years, right. You know, it's, it's extremely rare that I ever read an Eric Levitt's thing that I actually disagree with. Um, I mean, there have actually definitely been times when Bhaskar Sankara asked me to write something for Jacobin and I'll get ready and I'll start researching it and I'll, I'll do some Google searches on relevant things. It's like, oh, okay, Eric already wrote that, right? You know, it's like, I really don't need to write this. Uh, but, uh, but if there is a core difference, right, like what I always kind of took it to be about, right, is, is what that sort of, um, you know, telos of left politics, you know, would, would end up being, right? You know, that, um, you know, as, as much as, Obviously, 
you know, we're hilariously far from having this problem right now, right? That like, um, you know, we, we just kicked this off by talking about, you know, the increasing authoritarianism of the Trump administration in ways that even like preserving what's left to public sector unions, you know, is, is a, uh, in some ways, like a, is a challenging thing under these circumstances. But if we did kind of push social democracy to the limits of uh, what you could do under capitalism, you know, we're in this sort of situation that we're in, in like maybe Sweden in the seventies, um, where there had been really deep, extensive uh, social democratic reforms, and you sort of got to the point where you either had to to push those further and take on questions of of ownership, right? You know, uh, so the the minor plan uh, that they were they were floating uh, at the time uh, would have involved sort of slowly taking shares of corporations into the hands of worker controlled funds. Uh, in order to to do some kind of you know slow motion expropriation, uh, and so so I'd always kind of assumed that if there was a big difference between between us in terms of large scale worldview, it would have been about whether to see something like that as both possible and desirable, right? Or to think, okay, basically social democracy is 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 what we can is what we can do, and we shouldn't even really worry about anything else. But I think communicating with you enough, communicating with you a bit leading up to uh, you coming on the show, uh, I'm, I'm no longer I'm no longer like that clear on that, right? I, th- I think there might be a a, um, a coat of red uh, under the uh, un- under the paint there that I wasn't necessarily seeing before. Yeah, I mean, I I think I I pretty much identify as a socialist. I just um, I have some views on you know some judgments about tactics and about the Democratic Party that would cause a decent number of socialists to take umbrage at me describing myself that way. And so I'm not that invested in labels. So if they want to have it, that's fine with me. Uh, but um, as far as like, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it would be good to collectivize uh, capital ownership. Um, I don't think that, you know, anyone should have, uh, whatever, right now, the, the way that passive income is distributed, um, you know, it doesn't make much sense. It's hard to justify why, uh, you know, someone, uh, you know, who happened to inherit a Vanguard account or whatever should get a certain, you know, thousands of dollars a year. And, and well, the great mass of the population doesn't collect anything off of the, uh, the production we collectively generate. So, I mean, in terms of like the, the logic of it, I, I totally affirm um, the, the, the socialist principles. I do think that given where we are right now, where we haven't even gotten to a 20th century welfare, so we don't even have a fucking universal health care. Um, it just seems to me a little self-indulgent to get too into that, especially to the extent that it fractures uh, people, because like we need to, right now the, the left broadly defined is such a small uh, percentage of this country that I don't think we can uh, afford to, to splinter that much on this question, um, you know, to the extent that there are people who, who are social Democrats but who don't want to uh, affirm that next step. I think we don't need to really worry about that too much right now. But. Well, you know, I, I generally agree with sort of Eric, you know, coming from Britain, which has healthcare at least, and, yeah. you know, dealing with the American healthcare system is one of the most difficult things for someone coming from Europe to deal with because A, it's both irrational and the way that people defend it as like being a great system. It's like, bro, I've been like in Britain, I've been in Turkey, in Istanbul has better healthcare 
for the average citizen than uh, the, than the United States. So you know, like storming the commanding heights of wokeness and and the means of production is all great. But we, America is such is such an atomized society. There's libertarianism. You know, one of the big differences between Turkey and America is that libertarianism doesn't exist in in developing countries because just on a basic level, people realize it's idiotic, right? But it has such a hegemony here that, you know, people are willing to go to, you know, willing to die, uh, you know, to preserve a system which is utterly irrational. So I tend to agree with Eric in the sense that, you know, all these like great ideas for like the uh, you know the socialist future are great but we're at such a low level here in the united states barely you know maintaining the pet you know the, the pathetic welfare state we have now that you know having these like big discussions about whether we're going to go full socialism and have a workers cooperative or a centrally planned economy just i just don't think that makes sense to most people and i think it's a needlessly divisive uh, argument to have yeah, I mean, I, I certainly don't want to. Um, I certainly don't want to excommunicate or be unwelcoming, you know, to people who who don't have the same long term horizons uh, that I do. I, I want to maybe convince them over the long term, you know, that that they should, right? You know, but certainly work together. Um, right now, I guess to me, what I see as the most important short term thing is divisive, though, right? Is about like sort of promoting you know, a relatively aggressive, like social democratic current, you know, that, that anything that we can get going right now, uh, and frankly, heightening the contradictions between that and, and, and liberal centrism, right? You know, uh, in, you know, because I think, I think if we're, we're a very, very long way away from even being able to achieve those things, right? But I think, I think, I think in order to make even that a possibility, um, we, uh, we do need to, uh, we do need to do some of that. Uh, but um, anyway, my point is that you're both dead to me, uh, and uh, and 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 you're expelled from the the fraternity of of, of uh, gentlemen with beards and glasses. Uh, but um, but in all seriousness, really enjoyed the discussion. Uh, really hope to have you both on in the future. Uh, so yeah, thank you again. Thanks so much for having me. Levitz uh, is uh, a writer for uh, New York Magazine, The Intelligencer. I uh, should check out all of his stuff there. Uh, Jean Bajalon is a history professor at Missouri State uh, and writer for Jacobin. Uh, and I'm now joined uh, by, uh, by Matt Chrisman, uh, who uh, is, of course, part of the Chapo Trap House uh, podcast uh, and um, also uh, has been doing most days this uh, this Kush vlog. Yeah, like three or four times a week, probably. I say. Yeah, so so I, I have to say there was a day not very many days ago that like I woke it up. I was in a pretty bad state of mind. I'd like had two or three nights in a row where I didn't get much sleep, and I had a night where like you know I got more sleep but had bad dreams, and I woke up and uh, and I, I watched one of these Kush vlogs, and there was a point in there. Uh, that I think was exactly what I needed in my state of mind at that time, where you were talking first about 
Like there was all this like really heavy stuff about how life is coping. And then the transition was immediately from there to uh, talking about McDonald's McNuggets uh, and how amazing it would be if all the classic Christian iconography were redone to uh, substitute grimace uh, for like the cross in the sky that Constantine sees, you know, in this sign you will conquer. And um, anyway, thank you. I, I, I needed that. That was good. I'm glad, I'm glad that uh, you could be guided by the Holy Grimace. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so uh, I do want to uh, get into uh, some, some more, you know, some, some bigger picture stuff uh, politically with you. Uh, but, but first, since I saw this last night, uh, I can't not ask you about this. So I saw this headline. Uh, granted, it was from the Daily Mail in the UK. So I guess that means there's like a 50% chance that it's true. Uh, but it was, it was like the most 2020 headline ever. And I just want to read it out. Uh, QAnon supporter, 30, is charged with DWI and assault for chasing two motorists she thought were pedophiles. Yeah, no, I think that, I think I've seen that confirmed elsewhere. And if not, <laughs> it's certainly of a piece with other uh, events. We've seen a, a, a big surge in Q-related vigilantism recently. Yeah. Um, and, and in fact, uh, like, I, I believe, right, I, I heard you talk about this on Chapo. There was, there was a recent uh, press conference or something where, where Trump was asked about some of yes. this stuff. Yes, uh, that was on Wednesday. Uh, it was amazing. It's, it's, I was floating after I heard this because, so a reporter asked Trump about QAnon, and it's astounding to me that these people don't know who they're dealing with after four years. She was clearly trying to get him to denounce them or distance himself because like all, all media people, she's terrified because, well, I don't think that QAnon is a meaningful uh, social force in the sense that it's not going to lead to like, you know, brown shirts or anything because right. people doing it are, it's it, the, the QAnon is a way to process their alienation. It, it doesn't, and, and, and accommodate it. It's not a way to overcome it. Uh, but if one thing that they very much could do is just start shooting people. Right. Uh, and that very much, I think I would predict is going to happen, especially if Biden wins. And so people with any kind of uh, media prominence are, pro are justifiably worried about Q and they wanted the guy that the Q people worship to denounce him. And her tact for getting him to do that was to say, was to, was to ask him, what do you think of Q people? And her, his, of course, his response was, well, I, all I know about them is that they like me. And of course, that's all he knows about them. And so he's not going to denounce them there. And so she tried a second tack where she says, uh, she's trying to get through to him the insanity of what, uh, he, what they believe. And she said, they think that you are saving the world from a bunch of pedophile cannibals. And of course, what he heard was, oh my God, they think that I'm great, that I'm the savior. Exactly. And, and, uh, and he said, amazingly, my, it was amazing. He said, would that be so bad? Uh, because yes, he heard he's the savior and he already views his battle with the Democrats as an existential one because he isn't, he is, he is identified himself and America's as like co substantial. And so uh, they are by definition, anti-American. They want to destroy all the good things. He has convinced himself of those things because because he has to, and that is reflected in the Q people. They believe the same thing. Adding the, the sort of the filigree and the, and, the, and the melodrama of cannibal pedophilia, 
that will only give him like a richer and imaginative textured world to weave out of this uh, and a greater justification for his actions in trying to stop them from taking power. Uh, and that, it, it indicates to me more than anything that Q is going to eventually just take over the Republican Party. Because well, we already, I mean, there's already at least one Q believer who's, who like won a primary in a safe red district. Yes, uh, in Georgia. Uh, and I think that there are probably a few other uh, stealth Q people running. Uh, and more importantly, I think you will see establishment non-Q Republicans starting to do what they've always done, which is accommodate the, the fervency of the base by, by using their buzzwords. Uh, yes, yes, pedophile cannibals. If, if George H.W. Bush were running for office now, he would be like, we're going to get to the bottom of the deep state pedophiles eventually. <laughs> Maybe not yet, but it is inevitable. It's, it's, it's a progression that cannot be stopped because the, the, the cognitive dissonance between the country these people think they live in and the country that they find themselves in is so vast and they have fully, they are so fully atomized and, and, and absorbed by like the spectacle of America as, a, as an emotional architecture for their lives that that the as conditions worsen the need to create a greater and greater fantasy a more intense fantasy realm to explain the difference to bridge the gap is only going to metastasize yeah uh, and and I, I guess this this is interesting too because uh, well for one thing I mean like it, it gives like like every step of this process is depressing because, because the more you get that right, you know, like, like Republicans who might find ways of splitting the difference to make themselves amenable to whatever crazy shit the base is saying now, even if it's about pedophile cannibals, right. You right. know, I, I, I'm sure you can see, I'm sure you can imagine lots of stuff like, look, I'm personally not convinced that we have enough evidence that uh, all the Democrats, all of my friends in the Democratic Party are pedophile cannibals, but there are serious questions, you know, about right. pedophilia and cannibalism, and, and yeah. we, do need to, we do need to investigate this. Yeah. Um, the more that that happens, of course, this also um, gives Democratic centrists perfect cover uh, because, the, because the bar is, is just lowered that much more, right? You know, that like the same way that it's been like decades that Democrats can say, I believe in global warming, and that's kind of good enough, right? You know, that like, oh, look, there's, here's a guy who thinks that they believe in science. That's right. Exactly, right? These other people don't believe in science, and we believe in science, and as long as that's the electoral distinction, then the question of what exactly are you going to do about it, uh, you know, less so now that there's talk about a Green New Deal and stuff, but, you know, but the question of what are you going to do about it is yeah. like really secondary when you get points just for believing it. And now you can get points just for not believing the pedophile cannibalism. Yeah. 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 You, you become a, you become an August statesman by saying, I don't think that Chrissy Teigen flosses her teeth with infant bones. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and, and, and yeah, so like, there could be lots of look, you know, I don't, you know, Lots of, like, you can be a reasonable person somewhat to the left of the Democrats now by saying, look, I don't, I don't, you know, there are lots of things that I agree with Biden, disagree with Joe Biden about, or there are lots of things that I disagree with Sasha Obama or whoever in the future about, right, right you know, but, uh, but really the other side uh, believes that all Democrats should be arrested and put to death for being pedophile cannibals. Yeah. And, you know, as long as we can stop that, right, that's really what matters. Right. We have, we, have to, we have to banish this, uh, this insanity. Of course, 
the, the constant accommodation of right wing of like of, of accelerating capitalism only increases the intensity of these feelings, which then increases the ability of Democrats to not have to stand on anything other than negating them. Right. <laughs> which is yeah. why, by the way, this is that's the trick at the heart uh, of the entire claim to like we have to get rid of we have to vote Democrat now to get back to like a baseline that we can then move from is that the Democrats, in power, Democrats in power govern from the right and worsen conditions, meaning that you will never, the, the, the thing that Biden himself has said about how the fever is going to break. Well, not, if, <laughs> not if you keep sticking your finger in the bullet hole, like uh, James Garfield's doctor. The, the, yeah, the, the cycle will only exacerbate all of these things in one ratchet-like direction, and 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 the, the Democratic Party as a vehicle, as it currently exists, will only make those things worse. Yeah, uh, like like certainly the I like I mean I think there are different ways of making the case that like the outcome of the election matters, right? You know, like they're they're more optimistic and more cynical ways. You know, I I, I think you can think that um, that like at least there are certain kinds of aggressive things to do things like destroy what's left of public sector unions that Republicans are more likely to do than Democrats. But the idea that there's going to be this, this great reversal of everything that was done under Trump, you know, like what this is, is, is it's like, we're going to like, you know, turn over the hourglass, you know, and, and, and it's just going to start dripping from where it was in, in 2015 instead of where it is in 2020 is really weird because I can remember a time uh, when, you know, in, in my, uh, in my twenties, when, when George W. Bush was president uh, and all the things that he was doing uh, in terms of, you know, the Patriot Act, uh, you know, drone assassinations, you know, all, all of this stuff, right. Was seen as this unprecedented radical illegality, uh, that of course you have to get the sensible party back in office so that they'll reverse all this stuff and look, you know, they'll be bad. Of course, we all remember the Clinton years and all the bad economic stuff that happened. Right. But we'll at least start from the baseline, uh, of 2000 and that isn't what happened at all. Yeah. And now instead you're supposed to look back on the Bush years as models of, <laughs> of statesmanship. And yeah, literally I, in 2015, Bush was so toxic that his brother wouldn't let him campaign for him. And now, yeah, uh, yeah like, well, they that had was his like, secretary of state. They had a secretary of state who was the point man for selling the war that killed a million people uh, at, at the Democratic convention. And I, you might remember this too, if you were on the blogs in, the tw- in your 20s instead of going out like I was, that at the time, Democrats were saying, I miss Reagan. Yes. Reagan might have done bad things and whatnot, but he was still he, he had things that George W. Bush only wishes he could have. And now we are literally in a case where that that guy who was beyond the pale is now comfortably inside. I mean, it, and it, you, you look backward, the trajectory can only go one way. Yeah. Um, and and I, th- I think it's it's pretty it's pretty telling um, that if, if you watched, uh, you know, the DNC, um, I, I think you were, you're doing live commentary on that, right? So, yeah. so you, you, you probably, oh, sat unfortunately through. I did indeed have to watch that boy. Yeah. Uh, so, so you probably sat through, um, quite a bit, uh, of the, uh, of the DNC, uh, and, um, 
And one thing that was like really striking, look, I know all political conventions are vacuous, right? Like that, that's, you know, right. like very rarely that, you know, that you're going to deviate from that. Right. I mean, I guess like every now and again, you get, you know, the, uh, Williams, Jenny, Bryan talking about the cross of gold <laughs> or whatever, you know, but, uh, yeah. but like that's, that's, that's pretty rare. Right. You know, it's especially modern conventions. Yes. Uh, and there are some exacerbating things that were going on with, uh, with this particular convention um, that, you know, because it was just being held under bizarre circumstances that uh, like, um, you know, that, I mean, it was the, it was the political equivalent of watching a baseball game where they have cardboard uh, fans in the stands. Uh, yeah. And, and like that they, wall of clapping people <laughs> at the end of the speeches, just insanely uh, dystopian. The Logan's Run universe there. Just uh, They should have all been wearing like weird future togas or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? And, and of course, like especially like even like the roll call vote, which is normally like sort of charming in a goofy way. And, you know, parts of it were this time. But like some of those images from there were, uh, I mean. It was like I, a parade I think- of, it was like a parade of ISIS beheading videos. <laughs> A bunch of people in masks, yeah. grimly standing in a line. Yeah, um, but uh, but but even so, even even kind of grading on a curve for that, right? Okay, so some of this was just like media incompetence, like literally to the point where um, there was all this like dead air, or like you could hear people talking in the background. You know, like somehow the Democratic Party can't get it together to like get some people who know how to use zoom and have some media skills. Uh, I don't really understand what's going on there. Uh, and, and some of it's just the fact that you're doing it under a plague where like nobody's really figured out how to do this yet. So it hasn't happened yet, but there's also this, this much more general cringiness there that I think says something less about the circumstances right now and uh, more about the democratic party uh, joined now by Megan day, uh, who is uh, one of my favorite Jacobin writers uh, and, and who I wanted to, to loop into this specifically on this question, right? The sort of extreme, bizarre cringiness of the Democratic Convention and what that might say, not just about, okay, they're doing it to rid of plague and like um, they haven't figured out yet that like having a wall of Zoom clapping is incredibly creepy, uh, but also might say something about the Democrats. Yeah. Hey, Ben. Hey, Matt. Um, I think that obviously, like Ben said, some of it actually just has to do with the awkwardness of having a Zoom convention. And and it's kind of awkward anyway, but made extra so by the fact that they're trying to put on this sort of like sparkly political product in a very bizarre format. So leaving that aside, giving them the benefit of the doubt, I actually think that it's, I've been thinking since the convention that it might be useful to try to like develop a more structural analysis of why the DNC was so cringe and why the Democratic Party's political productions and spectacles are so cringe in general. This is the word that you keep seeing coming up over and over again. And my hunch is that actually what you're seeing is that the Democratic Party has to be increasingly vacuous in order to conceal the fact that because it's a cross-class coalition, it actually has two diametrically 
opposed political programs inside of it. Now, for a long time, one of those programs was just concealed by the fact that the working class, the organized working class and the progressive and socialist left were just so disempowered that there was no, you know, sort of swept under the rug, right? But as as the left starts to become more organized and more visible, the contradictions within the Democratic Party become more obvious. I mean, this is a party that essentially asks Blue Cross Blue Shield executives to um, exist in the same sort of party structure as people who are literally getting their medical claims denied by Blue Cross Blue Shields. So it's, you know, you see like the Republicans are putting forward this incredibly divisive vision. The Democrats are putting forward this like vision of false harmony where they're asking, you know, Blackstone executives to exist exist in the same party as people who are getting evicted and having their locks glued by Blackstone. I mean, this is there, like I said, there, there, there's a sort of like um, a genuine class conflict within the party. Now, obviously we know how that conflict gets resolved. It gets resolved in favor of the dominant class behind closed doors. Right. Um, but as the left starts to develop more visibility and more power, and I'm not going to overstate that, but you know, more than before, oh. Um, you start to see um, that the Democratic Party has to get more and more vacuous in order to actually not touch any third rail, not touch anything substantive that would reveal the contradictions. They're trying to downplay the contradictions, right? But they, their ideal situation would be to downplay the contradictions and be quiet. I mean, that's sort of literally mm. Joe Biden's strategy, right? But they can't actually yeah, I mean, but like to, to strategy, just... yeah. Be on TV enough to reassure people that he's still running for president and he hasn't died, right? You know, like I keep expecting that by October, he's just going to go out to wave at the window for 30 seconds a day and like that'll be the ritual, you know, that he won't be on TV anymore at all. If the Democratic Party had, if the Democratic Party top brass, the establishment had their way, that's literally how they would interface with politics in general, because it's a lot easier than trying to do a song and dance and produce an appealing political product while not touching that third rail or not touching anything substantive that exposes the fact that there is actually an incredible class contradiction at the heart of the Democratic Party. Um, and of course, the Republicans, too, they, they also have a working class base and a ruling class leadership, but they're sort of united in, in um, kind of like uh, death Called death drive. They like you know. You guys uh, talked about it. There, there's there's other stuff going on over there that doesn't give, put the yeah yeah. The well, well, they're, yeah. They're, I mean, like, well, they can at least give people red meat, right? That like um, right. right, right, right. That that they that you know, like what the Republicans you know say they'll do for uh, for for working class supporters and like these kind of small proprietors who are off in their base, right? Is is that they're going to, you know, I mean, well, that they're, they're going to reassert something culturally, which is a little vague and that can be kind of thin soup. But like now, you know, now if they're shifting to like, they're going to like track down all the pedophile cannibals and have them killed, you know, like at least that's exciting. Right. You know, whereas it's hard to see what's exciting that's being offered. Right. Like I saw like, you know, like in Kamala Harris's acceptance speech, like the one thing that stood out for me is there's no vaccine for racism, which I guess has the virtue of being, true but like it's kind of conspicuous that she's not telling us what we should be doing about racial injustice right we don't we don't have the magical racism vaccine but now we should do what 
Right, precisely. So there's like a there's like a, a typical baseline Democratic Party vacuity that when it needs to rise to the level of entertaining people or impressing upon people that it exists and it's real and it has some kind of, you know, identity, some kind of brand identity, they kind of go over the top with it and they end up being sort of like theatrical and mawkish. They go really purple with it. They make these sort of like overwrought emotional appeals that to us, I think a lot of us feel, oh my God, Marianne Williamson, actually, she knocked it out of the park. What did she say? She said that watching the DNC was like binge watching a Marriott commercial. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bless her. This is what I mean. Yeah. That's, that's why it's like that, though. The reason it's like that is not just because the people who are in charge of it have bad taste. I think that that's maybe the impulse that people have, where they're like, oh, I hate these people. They have bad politics, and they also have bad taste. No, it's actually much deeper than that. It's that we have a party that, unlike the Republican Party, actually theoretically purports to stand for for something-ish related to working people's interests-ish, and yet actually can't go too far in articulating that without biting the hand that feeds it. And so it needs to like backpedal away from that while also putting on a spectacle and can't really throw red meat the same way that the Democratic, I mean, the same way that the Republican Party can because they don't want to seem unhinged, right? So instead of seeming unhinged, they just seem really cringeworthy. So this is my theory about why it's so hard to watch them. In action. Yeah, no, I like it. Um, by the way, somebody in the Q&A asks, uh, do you think the left should continue to put its energy into taking over the Democratic Party or shift to build a new third party? Uh, either of you guys can get in on that, but I mean, my, my two cents would be that um, in, in a way it's a false dilemma and also in a way the whole premise is just kind of wrong, right? So the reason I think it's a false dilemma is that if we ever got an electorally viable third party in the United States, um, it wouldn't happen because the left in the form that it exists right now, like decides to will it into existence. Uh, I, I don't think that would, that would just, I, I just don't think anything that would, anything would come of that. Right. Like I think it would happen the way that like the Republicans emerged out of the wig, you know, like the ashes, of the Whigs and in, in the 19th century, uh, you know, through some sort of much more organic process within like the, the contradictions of an existing party, but also like there's something really weird, I think, uh, about the the premise of the question because it assumes that like in some deep sense that like the left, in other words, like people who consider themselves to be like conscious socialists or whatever, and in 2020, kind of has the power to decide what this like large scale political outcome is. Uh, and that reminds me of something that that I've heard you, Matt, talk about before. Uh, which which is that sometimes looking at the way that online political discussions happen right now and then the way that people try to like kind of translate that into some sort of activist or electoral efforts in the real world, it feels a little bit like, you know, the metaphor I've heard you use is that like we're talking to each other online and we're building these like ships and like these really elaborate ships and bottles yeah. uh, with this this political program that we kind of agree on among ourselves and then we keep trying to like go to the shipyard and be like, all right, well, we've got our ship, right? Let's, let's see it. And now we can just take right. it to the ocean and we can ride it, you know, where we want to go. Uh, but then that never really works. Yeah. Because it, people are, are creating litmus tests, basically. I mean, like what people think of as building a left is what they're actually doing is, is building a social group. They're, 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 they're orientating a social group around certain shibboleths. And then they police those. And th in the course of doing that, they are able to create what is to them like a legible distinction that creates like a group of people that they can feel like, okay, this is, these are my people. But 
with that, but because it's entirely synthetic and virtual, it means that taking that structure that you've created, that this ideological series of, of like uh, concepts and of course, and demands on people, you know, to be on the right side of them to count as what you consider the left means that if you ever were to transcend the virtual bound and try to actually do something with people in a world where you're trying to affect an outcome of say an election or a campaign of any kind, you will find that those rigor, those, those structures don't relate to anything. They don't relate to anything real. They, they relate to this battle within this, this self-selected, that's the most important element of it, group of people online who are essentially looking for social, uh, like, uh, social groupings to become part of. And that's the kind of stuff that in a practical campaign is the first to go because there is an actual goal that people are orienting towards that is not just a broad concept of like building an idea of a left. It's, hey, let's get this person across the finish line or let's stop this bill from being passed or let's defend these people who are going to get evicted. And those, those questions are, subs, are, are made subsidiary to the goal. But because the online left or, or left like discussion is so untethered though that consideration doesn't enter into it and then people end up hardening these distinctions as being the meaningful thing to 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 assert and that means that when you do have any opportunity to bring people in together these notions that they have created these artificial structures then just smash into each other Mm. yeah yeah it's it's like like if you if you spent all this time talking to each other and you agree that like, okay, these are the boundaries of uh, these are the boundaries of our movement and you end up spending a lot of time, which is, you know, if you, you know, like certainly if you spend time on left Twitter, which I wouldn't recommend like that, like what you'll, what you'll see a lot of is a lot of um, in group policing of those boundaries. Right. You know, yeah. it's like, okay, we all agree that you, you need to, you know, have the following series of takes, you know, to be inside the tent. And if you have a take that sounds like it doesn't quite fit with that, right, we'll sort of police that. Uh, and within that, you know, within those boundaries, like that works to a great extent, right? You know, people, people want to be on, on the inside or, you know, maybe you'll, you'll splinter the in-groups and, you know, you'll find one where everybody will accept it at least. And the main problem is, is that, as you've said, people will want to be on the inside. Well, that's if they have already have invested some part of themselves into that as a goal, which does not apply to the vast majority of people, which means that the, and this, this goes beyond what like you bring into things, but this goes into the question of communication and persuading among real people is that m normal people, regular non-politically uh, oriented, ideologically motivated people have not made the same buy-in that you are assuming in all the people that you've been interacting with. You are, like, uh, you are talking almost exclusively to people who have some investment in being in something called the left, which is not a normal thing that normal people want to do. And that means that the entire apparatus that you have created to persuade, which really just boils down to, to coercion through the use of, of, of shibboleths as cudgels, has no effect because the person you're trying to talk to doesn't care if you think they're a good leftist. 
Yeah, yeah, because because that's, that's yeah. yeah. I was gonna say I think I think I think that's a really good point. I think that an analog is maybe for people who aren't religious. I'm not religious. Is try to imagine what it would feel like if someone told you that you were not being a good like church goer or a good Christian. It just like wouldn't really. It's yeah. like okay, it doesn't alter your behavior in any way <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatsoever. Yeah. So I think that's a really good analogy. Actually, yeah. I wasn't pre- I was not prepared whatsoever to talk about this, but now that Matt's talking about this, I just have to say I'm reading this book called by Aaron Leonard called A Threat of the First Magnitude, and mm. it's about the FBI's infiltration of some Maoist groups in the uh, late 1960s and early 1970s. Um, and one of the things they did, I mean, everybody knows this, right? Everybody knows that when, when the FBI infiltrates left groups, they try to heighten, um, you yeah. know, they try to heighten the, the you know, um, the conflict within the group. But a sort of actual um, anecdote to this effect is that the group a revolutionary union was infiltrated by the FBI and the informant himself recommended that the inaugural edition of their paper, which is called the, the red papers be dedicated to tearing down another group called progressive labor. And then they looked at, so they did it and they published it and it was denouncing them as revisionists. And then they looked at the, um, this is before the internet, they looked at the roster of people in progressive labor and they sent them in the mail issues of the, of this in order to get under their skin. Well, now they don't have to do that. They don't have to look at roster. <laughs> and they don't have to send people issues in the mail. I mean, we literally have Twitter just accomplishes that automatically, right? So every time you get involved in a a doctrinal fight on left Twitter, imagine yourself as essentially doing precisely what the FBI informant was doing when shipping out copies of... uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you don't need to ship out the red paper when we all live in this, like online panopticon where you know where everybody's surveilling everybody as a matter of course anyway uh and what's, so, what's really amazing yeah. about it is is that like as as with the fbi uh uh infiltrators uh i mean now all movements are totally open to police informants but also just bad faith self-promoters and narcissists and and maniacs because if if shibboleths are the only thing you can go by, if you're assuming bad faith in everyone because you're trying to sort more than anything, then all anyone has to do is master the language. And they are in. And that means that whatever, whatever uh, uh, obstructive or undermining or counterproductive actions are then filtered through a lens of, well, they're on my side, so there must be something to what they're saying because they're saying the right things. Mm-hmm. That's what they, I mean, this is also the FBI intentionally, they created something called the ad hoc committee for a Marxist Leninist party or something like that. I mean, it's a little alarming to imagine them aping the language so perfectly. And apparently they were putting out papers and it was all like, perf- and, and, and not a lot of it was pretty well concealed. I mean, a lot of it was not necessarily divisive in nature. I mean, they, they were trying to be in it for the long haul, right? So they were in some ways looking like they were participating in, in good faith. Yeah. Um, and, and the other, the other, I guess, anecdote while we're, while we're on this is that the FBI wouldn't merely send people into these groups. It would also pluck people who had been made pariahs in these groups. It was very conscious of looking for people who had been uh, have involved, but had been socially excluded or had some sort of like personal grievance or bitterness because of the way they'd been treated by the group and to find people who'd been abandoned by something that they'd given their life to. Right. And those were, those were the perfect targets to turn into informants. Um, I guess one of the lessons you draw from that is that if you're, participating in that process, turning people into pariahs. I'm not just talking about the likelihood of police infiltration. I'm just talking about, look, the 
what the FBI or the CIA or whatever, what they're doing is simply trying to accelerate processes that dissolve left groups automatically. Do you yes. know what I mean? So like it's, it's not just, we're not just talking about leaving yourself open to police infiltration. We're talking about the police are very good at figuring out what we do to ourselves that destroys our own movement and just like pressing those buttons. So there are lessons in fact to learn from, from their strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I did want to switch gears though, because because uh, we've been been talking about this sort of weird behavior of um, the online left uh, and 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 the way that these like this like in group enforcement can work for us. Uh, but but I am also curious, um, you know, now that uh, that Kamala Harris is the uh, is the vice presidential nominee. Uh, about uh, this sort of weird online behavior of uh, the people who are the most enthusiastic uh, about about Kamala Harris, like weirdly enthusiastic <laughs> for somebody who is a pretty uninteresting kind of centrist politician. Like, if if anything, kind of like a, a weather vane of, of where the Democratic Party is, like at, at any given time. Uh, you know, up until very recently, her, her big selling point was that she was such a tough cop and, you know, but now she's all on top of various uh, criminal justice reform things. There was a long weekend where she supported Medicare for all uh, to position herself for a presidential run. Uh, and then she was back to supporting some kind of two tiered, you know, public option, you know, system. Uh, so, so you wouldn't think that this is the sort of figure who would inspire this kind of like, rabid we you know you are our queen and we will die for you level devotion well i think i think i mean her her lack her lack of uh of qualities uh certainly positive ones but seems like almost any uh is is it highlights the phenomenon and and and, and shows the sort of oddness of, of the intensity of feeling but but the general dynamic i think is predicated on the fact that you have among Democratic voters, at least a significant portion of them, uh, they have at a certain level, either because it's in their interests or because they have lost faith that things can change, sublimated or obliterated their demand that the party do anything to make anybody's life better and have replaced that with a passionate desire to see some sort of ratification of their identity in their political leaders. And that was a big theme in the Democratic primary, but then the joke of it all culminated. The punchline was is that the person who the party regulars, the people who most reliably vote, chose was a guy who defied all of those categories, the whitest, malest, straightest guy you could imagine, old soda pop Joe Biden, which meant that that which creates cognitive dissonance. And since the Republicans or not being political are not an option for people like this for various psychological and social reasons, the presence of someone on the ticket who embodies these identity categories that they value becomes the entire and sole vector for their emotional connection to the ticket and the party. And so has to, has to hold this, has to have this uh, huge psychic uh, place in their in their uh, imaginations, even though they're fully not up to the task. I mean, the same thing, a similar thing happens with conservatives. I mean, the, the, the people who, who fixate on Trump as a masculine figure of like untrammeled American, uh, you know, manhood and virility, this waddling doughball who can't drive a car. It's, it's a similar uh, uh, 
Not like Joe Biden's fantasy. father. He could drive a car. He could drive a car. It's a similar psychic like fantasy projection to a co- to compensate for the fact that the, the the fantasy is necessary, and I think that's a lot of the appeal of, of uh, Harris. I agree yeah. with what Matt said. I also think that there's something else going on. To, I mean, this is basically just, it hits on the exact same thing that I mentioned earlier, talking about like why the Democratic Party's cultural productions are so embarrassing and painful to watch. I mean, ultimately, if the structural explanation for that has to do with the fact that the Democratic Party is a very awkward and incoherent cross-class coalition, I think that that also is at least partly the explanation for, and this dovetails with what Matt was saying, but partly the explanation for the presence of militant centrists and militant centrists in the party's base are a real phenomenon. I think they're growing phenomenon, actually. I think that probably the first flash of them that you really saw, I mean, look, I'm sure that you can find examples of this throughout mm-hmm. history, but, but like at the very least we should draw, we should be drawing a through line between the Pumas and the K-Hive. So if you, yes. if you, yeah, right. Like the Pumas were the, were the people who were pro Hillary Clinton in 2008, who were very upset that Barack Obama had won the primary and didn't want to vote for him. And their little acronym, their slogan for themselves was party unity, my ass. Right. And that became the acronym Puma and they became the Pumas. These were the militant, militant centrists. Um, they were, um, you know, more politically conservative, but also extremely enamored of identity politics. And they're actually the sort of first people to go out there and like craft what eventually became like the vanguard of what that actually looks like, which we're starting to see really flourish in the Democratic Party um, today. And so these, a lot of these K-Hive people, they're not new to politics, actually. I mean, some of them are, but they weren't drawn necessarily drawn in by Kamala Harris. They're actually just epiphenomenal to the contradictions in the Democratic Party. And they've They've been around for a while, and they their new their new manifestation is as K Hive, right? Because um, so it makes it makes perfect sense for them. And my feeling is that we're going to be stuck with them until the contradictions are resolved, essentially. So we should all just buckle in because people like this are going to be around oh, for yeah. a while. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And my also another thing, just while we're on the topic, is that having spent some time, you know, I, I like, I logged off Twitter for a year and a half and then I got back on in like August of last year and, um, you know, did the whole primary and now I'm, I'm off again. I feel good about it, taking a break. But during that time, during the primary, when I was on, I was, you know, really seeing the way that the Bernie bro online harassment narrative was being mobilized against the Bernie campaign and also starting to see the rise of, this new iteration of the Pumas, the K-Hive, and I was starting to see them actually as a much more literal embodiment of precisely the type of things that the media was saying about the Bernie bro army. Um, they are actually, I mean, Micah, Micah basically, Micah Utrecht, my co-writer and editor at Jacobin, was saying, was comparing them to the wide awakes, calling them digital paramilitaries. I mean, these people are incredibly, they're incredibly militant. Um, and the, um, just, there was just, just, just to make sure uh, anybody's listening to this, not familiar. That was the, um, the like quasi paramilitary organization that would do like torchlight parades, you know, uh, of, of basically uh, young Lincoln supporters when he ran for president. Mm. And so that's essentially uh, what we've got now, but these are Kamala Harris's wide awakes. Um, uh, and um, well, the, the other point that I was going to make, yeah, is the media giving, giving them an enormous pass in the way that you didn't see with the, the sort of Bernie bros. I mean, like, look, like there are a lot of, when passionate, when people who are pa- as passionate about something with stakes as high as politics have internet access by the millions, you're going to find all kinds of behavior, right? You can cherry pick and do whatever you want. But uh, when it came to Bernie Sanders 
and his supporters. Um, they essentially tried to transform what I think was his greatest strength, the passion of his supporters into his greatest weakness, sort of hit them where they're strongest, not where they're weakest uh. was the thinking, thinking there. And now when it comes to Kamala Harris and the KHAB, you see the exact same reporters. I mean, literally the same reporters publishing articles, right? That's Scott Bixby of yeah. the Daily Beast. You know what I'm talking about? People <laughs> should really um, go try to find two articles written by Scott Bixby a few months apart, the toxic Bernie bros. And Kamala Harris has built a digital army with which she is going to defeat Donald Trump. Yay. Great. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, and I, and I, I guess just like one last thing about this, cause, cause there's, there's something like, there is something like that, that really does seem like deeply strange about this to me. Cause granted, right. As you say, lots of stuff is at stake in electoral politics. Uh, even in cases like sort of which centrist is represented the democratic party where maybe less is at stake. People invest it with a lot. You have millions and millions of people you know, who have social media. You are going to get a certain amount of this, but like, it does vary, right? Like, there were no like, there was no like, um, like dedicated army of people who was quite as intense about like Mayor Pete or you know like most of these people as there were about about Kamala Harris. Uh, and 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 so like it's it's something like I don't know. I mean, I, I guess maybe some of this is just like. Um, they happen to coalesce, you know, some of this, okay, some of this is obviously about identity. Maybe some of this is just like at the right moment, they started to coalesce around her. And then at that point, who she is, maybe just doesn't matter that much because like, you know, cause like this is what she symbolizes for them. And so as long as she's like basically going to act within the parameters of how any politician would act, they can like just stay dedicated to her forever as she does this like weird tepid maneuvering about like, you know, about how to, how to present repackaged centrism. I think that it's the combination of contempt for the left and the kind Mm -hmm. of like psychological profile of people who have extreme contempt for the left, which, which Matt was getting into coupled with the ability that Kamala as a like, a black woman gives them to also hold at the same time the righteous indignation and the sort of like identity politics affect. And the combination of those two things actually produces like an exponential level of intensity, I think. And that's probably why you see it explode with the k It's also just the case that for whatever reason, and I don't entirely know why, Kamala got those people instead of Pete. I think it could have been, like it could have been Pete, it could have been Liz, Right. But once it became Kamala, there is a bit of groupthink and there is a bit of like, um, I don't mean groupthink to be a derogatory. I mean, there's just like, you know, there's patterned behavior. People go, it's people want to, people want to be on the inside. People want to have like a sense of group identity. And so they go where the others are going. And eventually it was Kamala and that started happening. I think sure it caught her by surprise in the same way that the phenomenon of the Bernie bro, I'm sure caught Bernie Sanders enormously by surprise. And I'm sure it took him a very long time to even begin to understand what, what the hell was happening um, when people were, his aides were coming and explaining to him what was going on. People were so excited about him on the internet, right? Um, I don't think that she consciously cultivated it at all. I think it was just um, a process. Oh, no, if she tried to, it would have failed miserably. Right. I mean, if she had tried to, to get people to, to see her that way, that would, have, like, that would have made people aware of the phenomenon. Like, it has to be like this almost subconscious transference. And so you mm-hmm. just have to be the vessel. And that's what she was. Makes sense. All right. Thank you guys both so much. Um, so uh, I really hope that you both come back on soon. Yeah, um, thank you. 
Absolutely. Thanks, Ben. So that was um, Megan Day uh, from uh, from Jacobin uh, and uh, Matt Chrisman uh, from uh, from Chapo Trap House. Um, so if you you know if you're not reading uh, reading uh, Megan and in uh, Jacobin, you uh, you really should be. Uh, also, her and uh, Michael Utrecht's uh, book uh, Bigger Than Bernie, um, you know, which which is a really smart look at democratic socialist strategy. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I think there's like statistically a pretty good chance that if you're watching or listening to this, you uh, you listen to Chapo Trap House. But if you're not uh, if you're not uh, watching uh, Matt's Cush uh, vlogs, you know, I really recommend them. Uh, but uh, but right now uh, we are inaugurating. We kind of got this uh, when when David was a guest uh, last week. Uh, so David Griscom from the Michael Brooks Show of the uh, Griscom Economic Minutes uh, said earlier that uh, he's you know um, my uh, second favorite Texan after uh, after the one I'm married to, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and 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 he's he's agreed to come back and make the kind of stuff we were talking about last time. A uh, regular weekly segment. I think we could call it "Outlaws and Revolutionaries." I love it. Uh, so, um, so I, I, I saw you take a sip of something earlier. What was that, dude? I'm having some Buffalo Trace, which is my go-to bourbon these days. Nice. Yeah. No, I, I, I have just been, you know, drinking this this Oberon, but I, I, I did I did pour a glass of bourbon to start uh, to start when you came on to do the segment. Hell yeah! Uh, so this is the uh, this is uh, Woodford Reserve. So it's like, yeah, it's a pretty nice smooth bourbon, but um, on a not entirely unrelated topic, uh, I want to, uh, I want to talk about uh, country music. Uh, you, mm-hmm. uh, you, you defended the, uh, the, the leftist uh, credentials of, uh, of Willie Nelson last time, uh, you know, I thought we'd maybe go through, you know, a couple more of these guys, the first couple of these segments, and then just kind of settle into um uh, you know, you, you can just talk about some of your favorite music, and uh, and sure. and when politics comes up, it comes up. But uh, the obvious place to to go now for this week uh, would be to talk about Johnny Cash. Yeah, I'm really happy to talk about Johnny Cash. Um, I mean, Johnny Cash is somebody whose legacy I don't feel like you have to defend as much because he is such a figure, a rebel figure for so many people. But I just wanted to give a little vocabulary to that argument to folks. Um, I don't know, like Johnny Cash is like remembered more for sort of being, you know, drinking a lot, causing a lot of trouble and just sort of having a kind of FU persona. Um, But people forget about how radical a lot of his music is. I mean, obviously uh, there's Man in Black, which is a phenomenal song if you're not familiar with it. Um, You know, it's basically where he explains why he wears the black and he, you know, tells this story uh, where he says, you know, you know, I like to wear a rainbow every day and tell everybody that the world is not okay. And then he starts, uh, that everything in the world is okay. And then he starts going through, you know, the problems in the world, primarily that a lot of people are really suffering and are unable to, uh, you know, provide for themselves. He's, he wears the black for the poor and beaten down. Um, you know, really a radical, a radical anthem in a lot of ways. I mean, basically he's seeing and presenting himself as a kind of champion for the people who are left behind, which I think is fundamental to Johnny Cash's music and persona and his legacy, in my opinion. But a couple of songs that people might not know as much, because what kind of annoying lefties get on about Johnny Cash is that, you know, he had a little bit of a patriotic uh, streak. Obviously the song Ragged Old Flag, 
uh, which, mm-hmm. you know, I think played in the Super Bowl or something like that, um, you know, definitely plays on those things. But I think it's a great song and a good sentiment. Um, but another song, another thing that it gets a lot of flack for is for playing for Richard Nixon in the White House yeah. during the Vietnam War. And I understand why people are worked up about that, but I think a lot of people forget the song that he sang to Richard Nixon, uh, which is a song called What is Truth? And it's basically a song that he wrote. I can't remember the university that he was playing at, but basically he was playing at a university and he spent you know, the afternoon talking with people and he started writing down sort of their thoughts and their questions. And you know, I won't sing the whole song or even go through all the lyrics, but basically the, you know, the song is it's an anti-war song. It's an anti-Vietnam song. It's saying, you know, why are we fighting the war? And the lonely voice of youth asks, what is truth? And honestly, if you do believe, if you do believe in the power of music and art, which I do, if you could imagine any better song to sing to somebody like uh, Richard Nixon, I mean, I think that's really it. Oh, absolutely. And I think even in terms of, of, the, uh, of the patriotic streak, uh, I mean, I, I think if your perspective is that all sort of uh, national identity is bad uh, because, you know, because we should be internationalists. And, you know, I agree with some of the premise, of course, you know, uh, I think international working class solidarity is important, but I think you're also going to miss a lot of the, uh, the shades, right? Yeah. You know, that like that, that there are, that not all national identity has the same political character, right? So like certainly, for example, right, when I think about Johnny Cash uh, and and this and the patriotic element of his music, like one of this one of the first songs that uh, that comes to my mind is the Ballad of Ira Hayes. Yeah, that's a great jam. No, I think that's a hundred percent right. And I mean, you know, even zooming out a little bit, I know patriotism. I mean, it's such a toxic word, and most of that is just pure ideology. But you know, that being said, like everyone knows, I mean, not everybody knows me, but for people who know me, know that I'm a socialist and a radical, and all these things. But I like this place a lot and I like the people here and I like the culture and, you know, I have very fond feelings about this country too. And I think that that's something that we shouldn't just seed. I think it's a very universal thing. And it's actually something that we should cultivate. Um, not necessarily a kind of like a right patriotism or something like that, yeah. but, but, you know, a kind of like a love for the people in general, the people around you and a love for your community is a beautiful thing. And we shouldn't shy away from it just because so much of like, patriotism and I wouldn't even call my feelings patriotic per se um you know because that is such obviously like a right-wing militaristic idea we shouldn't shy away from being able to say like oh I love this country and I love the people in it I love the stories and the history and all that but there's one more song that I would like to read a couple lyrics from yeah yeah just 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 just, 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 uh, just just quick before you do that though right like I, I did want to I, I did want to jump in just kind of oh, let's go for it yeah, go for it first then yeah, underline and circle that point, right? Like that uh, there is something um, that is, uh, that, that I, I don't know, like this always bugs me, right? I've talked about this on here before, like when uh, when like you get like a sort of certain like kind of lefty who will like every 4th of July, they'll post stuff on social media about how like the American Revolution was actually bad and you shouldn't mm-hmm. celebrate this and whatever. And like I always think like, okay, um, you know, this is something that's um, obviously you're talking about very complicated history and there's lots of real stuff that you could bring up to support that narrative, but like also there's lots of stuff that wouldn't, right? And uh, and in terms of thinking about how that sort of past, you know, democratic revolution 
uh, mm-hmm. with all of its internal contradictions, right? You know, could relate to, to what we are, what we want now. This just kind of always struck me as the most tone deaf response, right? First, because like, like, come on, like just, it, it wouldn't kill you to just like, you know, have a hot dog, have a couple of drinks, like enjoy <laughs> yeah. the people that you love, right? You know, that yeah. like, don't be a complete weirdo about this. But like also that like you can, you can look at different aspects of that history and draw different things from it the same way that in the Ballad of Ira Hayes, right? Uh, Cash, uh, you know, is, is talking about this, this patriotic imagery, right? Raising the flag in Iwo Jima, but like he's talking about it in the context of talking about this Native American soldier has been treated very badly, mm-hmm. you know, by, by, the, by the country that he lives in. Uh, and so there's a lot, you know, there's a lot there for us politically. Uh, and I've always liked, um, you know, one of those uh, Mensheviks who I probably have many more fond feelings about than you do. Uh, Michael Harrington, you know, has this line in his book, Fragments That's of the Century. That's a great line. I love this line. Yeah, yeah, where he says, uh, it was as a socialist and because I was a socialist that I fell in love with America. And saying that, I'm not indulging in romantic nostalgia about youthful days on the road, but rather underlining a crucial political truth. If the left wants to change this country because it hates it, then the people will never listen to the left and the people will be right. To be a socialist, to be a Marxist, is to take an act of faith, of love even, toward this land. It is to sense the seed beneath the snow, to see beneath the veneer of corruption and meanness and commercialization of human relationships, men and women capable of controlling their own destinies. To be a radical is to be in the best and only decent, in the only decent sense of the word, to be patriotic. And, you know, and I'm, I'm sure the stuff there that could be nitpicked, but I think the basic sentiment is really good mm-hmm. and really well put. And that, like, I think if, if we're just going to sort of, like, react to any kind of musical invocation of American identity, like a vampire reacting to the cross, you know, like, that's just not a very good political instinct. I 100% agree. You know, I'd also add that, you know, formal freedoms matter and formal yeah. principles matter. And even though we know, for example, you know, the line, all men are created equal, has never been realized or even come close to being realized and was a very almost like cynical line to put in, um, you know, at a time, obviously, when people were human bondage. Um, the fact that people grow up in a political community where that is taught as like, this is a founding idea of a country, something that social, like to me, like that premise is a socialist premise. And it's something that we should actually invoke and to say, like, actually, let's hold ourselves to these kind of standards. I think there's, like, there's a huge strategic failing to walk away, actually, from a lot of the rhetoric, which, yes, it's not been met. But that doesn't mean that people don't have, like, a feeling and, and, and a beauty and a, and a motivation to try to enact that on a certain level. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and, I, and again, I mean, I think that, like, you can acknowledge the contradiction between – the ideals, you know, the best of the ideals of the American Revolution, of, of the democratic tradition, and uh, the reality of America both then and now. But like acknowledging that contradiction doesn't necessarily doesn't mean that you should throw out the first part, right? It means that you should, like the much better strategy is to hold on to the first part and use it, you know, in, in order to, to expose the failures of the second part. But uh, mm-hmm. before I cut you off, yeah. you're going to do, I'll talk about another cash song. Yeah, no, I'll do it real quick. And, um, but just before, you know, we have a great history in this country too. Johnny Cash recognized that a fun thing about Johnny Cash, a lot of people didn't know that he actually played John Brown um, in the television, uh, like the long form television show North and South, uh, which is just another great Johnny. That's, Cash. That is an amazing detail. I mean, um, he looks great as a John Brown too. 
Um, but I wanted to, I wanted to just point out a great working class song by Johnny Cash called Oni. And I'll just read the first, uh, the opening line from it, uh, where he says, I dedicate this song to the working man for every man that puts in eight or 10 hard hours a day of work and toil and sweat. Always got somebody looking down his neck, trying to get more out of him than he really ought to have to put in. Right. Which is, in my opinion, is just like a great example of, you know, kind of capitalist exploitation as a concept. But anyways, this song is a really fun song because the story is basically a guy who spent his whole life working at a factory and it's his last day. And he knows that he's going to get, you know, clap for and get a gold watch or whatever when he walks out. But what he's really excited for is when the whistle blows, he's going to punch his supervisor in the mouth. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great jam. I'll I'll post it on Twitter after this. It's a really fun one. That is amazing. Uh, And I love that he played uh, John Brown. I was actually just reading uh, this article in Unheard, by our friend and comrade Ralph Leonard, um, uh, which starts out with this this great detail, right? Which is, um, I'm just going to read out here. Shortly after his divorce from the Nation of Islam, Malcolm X was asked in an interview whether he would accept whites into his short-lived upstart organization, the Organization for Afro-American Unity, OAAU. Definitely not, he instantly snipped. But after a moment's contemplation, he added, if John Brown were still alive, we might accept him. I mean, fair enough. <laughs> All right, thank you so much, David. I know that you're uh, that you're, um, yeah, that you're you're smoking my some meat right now. Interested? My uh, my poor man's brisket is going great. I'm about to pull it off in about 20 minutes. Nice. All right. See you next week, David. I'll right, talk to you later. Bye. Bye. All right. Uh, so uh, next week, uh, we are going to be um, slowing down a little bit uh, and, uh, and just, having, uh, just having two guests so we can have slightly longer conversations. Um, the guest you just listened to, of course, uh, was, uh, was David Griscom uh, from The Michael Brooks Show. Um, and before that, uh, we had Matt Chrisman from Chapo Trap House, Megan Day from Jacobin, uh, Jean Bajelon, who writes for Jacobin, is also a history professor at Missouri State, uh, and uh, Eric Levitz from New York Magazine. Uh, but uh, next week, uh, the uh, the two guests are going to be uh, Nathan Robinson, who's the editor of Current Affairs, and then uh, Yarn Brook uh, from the Ayn Rand Institute. So obviously, uh, Yarn is coming on to argue with me. Uh, so Nathan uh, and I. Uh, Nathan Robinson and I just uh, co-wrote an article that was a review of uh, Glenn Beck's book, Arguing with Socialists. Uh, I read that uh, because I had gotten up to 100 uh, 100 patrons on my Patreon, and so I told people that if I made it up to 100, the equivalent that I was going to do of a food bucket challenge or something like that uh, is... um, would, would be that, uh, that I would read uh, Glenn Beck's uh, Arguing with Socialists. And I did indeed, you know, that big bowl of spiders, you know, I ate every single spider, I read the whole thing. Um, and uh, it wasn't very good. Uh, I think it's effective propaganda in some ways, maybe more effective than we might like to admit. Uh, but certainly the reasoning is terrible. And so Nathan and I talk about it in, uh, in the review, which... Um, the, the issue just came out, so it should be mailed to print subscribers very shortly. And I think there's going to be an online version of the review posted eventually. So uh, next week, 
uh, Nathan and I are going to start out talking about Glenn Beck. Uh, I read, you know, I read the book so I could write my half of the review. Uh, we're going to have to talk, by the way, about uh, what uh, what literary food bucket uh, I, I could eat uh, when I get up to uh, for 500 patrons, which would be the next goal. That's patreon.com slash Ben Burgess. You get early access to these episodes after, you know, the Zoom recordings. Also get um, weekly essays and regularly scheduled Discord office hours voice chats. Uh, but we're going to start out talking about the Beck Review uh, and uh, and about Glenn Beck in general. Uh, Nathan actually also read a biography of Beck, you know, while we were writing the review. Uh, and I think if you look at, at Beck's whole history, like it tells us a lot about the right. And then we're going to use that as the jumping off point for a tale of talking about uh, several more of these right-wing ghouls uh, that uh, that Nathan has written about, uh, people like race science huckster uh, Charles Murray, co-author of uh, The Bell Curve, um, like Ayn Rand, uh, and a few others. Uh, and then uh, during the second half of the show next week, I'm going to be arguing with Yaron Brook from the Ayn Rand Institute uh, about uh, the, the Randian view of selfishness and why they think it's a virtue and what sort of argument they can make for this and uh, why I'm radically unpersuaded by all of that. Uh, so uh, that is uh, coming up next week. Somebody in the chat asked uh, if we're going to have a chalk- chalkboard for talking about Beck. We totally should have. Going to think, you know, think about whether there's a good way to incorporate that. But meanwhile, um, this should be going up in uh, nice edited forms. Patrons get immediate access to the Zoom recording, but it should be going out into the world uh, as a uh, podcast. Uh, on Monday, you can download that and please also rate and review at all of the usual podcast places, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all of those. Uh, and, uh, and it will premiere on YouTube, the video version, at 7.30 p.m. on Monday. We do that at 7.30 so it doesn't conflict with the uh, Jacobin talks that are supposed to end at 7 but often go a little bit over. Uh, but meanwhile, uh, I really enjoyed this. I hope you guys did too. I will see you next week. Thank you.